Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. I'm Madam Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of quantum computing. So, Matamor, maybe you talk a little bit about why we're even talking about quantum computing right now? Yeah. A lot of people think of quantum physics as a subset of physics as a whole. So they think of quantum physics as just dealing with the small things and it's a relatively niche area. And that conception is so wrong because really what quantum physics is, is it's the most up-to-date, most accurate model that we have for the entire universe, right? So it's more accurate at predicting what goes on in the universe than Newtonian physics, for sure, and even than relativity. And I just want to open with a quote that I really like from Seth Lloyd, who's one of the fathers of quantum computing. And he says that the universe is governed by the laws of quantum mechanics. The history of the universe is, in effect, a huge and ongoing quantum computation. The universe is a quantum computer. And That's I, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, that really, that quote really sums up why quantum computing is just the most, one of the most important topics we've discussed on this podcast, because it has applications for many of the other topics we've discussed previously. So how, mm -hmm. how fast we progress with nuclear, how fast we progress with AI, how fast we mm -hmm. progress with chemistry or biology. A lot of these can be growth hacked using quantum techniques and yeah theoretically it, yeah and and just to kind of expand on what you were saying about quantum physics being a better description of of nature and and really it's describing the fundamental building blocks of nature mm -hmm. the reason that you know we still have um or that we're using stuff like relativity and just kind of ignoring quantum physics at the bigger level is because those other models are really good at predicting really big Right. Objects. So like macro phenomenon. The, the, yeah, the quantum the quantum fluctuations and stuff aren't really apparent in really large objects. So that's why we still use yeah. stuff. But like they that. are they are a prerequisite for large objects. Like for instance, your cell phone or your computer is dependent on our understanding of silicon. Oh, yeah. And without our understanding of quantum mechanics, we wouldn't understand silicon. We wouldn't be able to create mm -hmm. smartphones or computers. So we can thank our Instagram accounts to quantum scientists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, for real. And then another, you know, to go even beyond that, nuclear fusion is what happens in the sun. We talked about that on the future mm -hmm. of nuclear. And that also is dependent on quantum tunneling, which is a phenomenon within quantum mechanics. Because basically what happens is two hydrogen atoms bounce into each other and then the protons within their nuclei quantum tunnel into each other to combine to release all of this energy and become one. And without the ability to quantum tunnel, which is literally going through a wall that you would think is like a physical barrier, there would be no energy in the sun. There would be no heat or sunlight. There would be no life on Earth. We wouldn't be here. So we can thank our entire life and our technological prowess yeah. to our understanding of quantum mechanics and quantum computation yeah yeah and it's it's really interesting too that quantum computing was conceived a long time ago like richard feynman was one of the early people mm -hmm. that kind of said oh what you know if we can compute stuff which is basically just 
transforming some input information to some output information? What if we just change the way that the information itself is stored in the first place and the and the type of information it is? And maybe that would change the types of computations we can do. Right. And I think it, I would love to hear how you think of a quantum computer as being distinct from a classical computer. Because I know like classical computers, they're all bits. They're ones and zeros, and it's got to be either one or the other. Whereas with quantum computer, there's this really uh, difficult to grasp concept of super superposition, where something can be some combination of one and zero, where it's like 90% one, 10% zero, 99%. Yeah. Like it just can fluctuate between any proportion of one and zero. And obviously that allows for much more computation, but maybe you can explain it more clearly. Yeah, so the the state of a qubit or the state of uh, superposition really is sort of a transient state. And then like, you know, I'm sure most people have heard of when you observe or when you measure Mm -hmm. a quantum state, it collapses something called a wave function. So this wave function is basically telling us what the probability of this, you know, where this um, particle is or something else. And with quantum computing, like I was saying before, we're really just changing the substrate or the, the way that the information itself is encoded. Because with classical computing, information, like you said, is stored in bits, zeros or ones. And mm-hmm. in the physical world, the way those are actually represented in the physical world on computers are typically through voltages. So a zero would be like a like no voltage or a very low voltage. Right, and it's like a light one, switch. Yeah, pretty much. And and you can when you combine all of these circuits, you know, you can I'm sure people have seen videos of people like creating circuits of lights. You switch, mm-hmm. you take one switch and or even played with uh, lights, two light switches in the same room that uh, target the same light. You know, you can play with them. If you turn one on and then the other on, it just turns the light off. It's really kind of the right. same thing with like, a bit. Yeah, like I've heard one metaphor that even the most powerful computers we have today, classical computers, it's basically just like having an army of, you know, fourth graders doing yeah. very simple math for you. And mm-hmm. that's basically how classical computation works. You have these very simple functions like and or plus, you know, multiply. Yep. And then you're doing these computations. And that's great if you have a, a pretty straightforward problem. But if you have an optimization problem that requires like, you know, factoring prime numbers or or something that just has many dif- different potential outcomes, then mm-hmm. you're much better off with a quantum computer that is based on probabilities and can sort of operate in parallel. Yeah, and, and to kind of expand on that a little bit further, like you said, there there are these operations with classical computers, like mm-hmm. and, or. So if, you, if you're taking, if you're doing and, it's like, if I have two bits that are one and one, then that is the output is one. And there, you know, there's all these rules for gates, and the output can only be a zero or a one. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is, so there are still gates in quantum computing, but those gates are way more flexible. So you can do like the square root of and or something crazy like that, and then 
really what these gates are is just a matrix operation. Um, so yeah. you can like you can define quantum algorithms basically through linear algebra, through hmm. matrix operations, which is which I think is pretty cool. Um, but that leads to some other issues that we'll get to uh, maybe later. But really, quantum computing is like how do we instead of voltages, how do we encode information in a system that has quantum properties? So the really what we care about is something called a qubit, mm -hmm. which is a zero or a one or zero and a one at the same time with some probability of each. But um, if you remember in like high school algebra, when we looked at complex numbers with a real part and an imaginary part mm -hmm. it's actually sort of similar with a qubit when you try to express a qubit mathematically it's like it has a a zero part and it also has a one part mm -hmm. and and that's kind of it lends itself really nicely to linear algebra so you can create all of these these mathematical operations on a complex number or a qubit theoretically and that's this kind of this math actually makes it easier to develop conceptually what sort of quantum algorithms yeah, we can write. And that's one of the defining features of quantum computing is that it's something that's relatively straightforward to express mathematically, but it's really difficult to actually grasp. <laughs> I mean, there have been some famous quotes, you know, for instance, from people like Richard Feynman when talking about what quantum computing is, and he said, he said, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Or another yeah. quote is, if quantum mechanics hasn't profoundly shocked you, you haven't understood it yet. And <laughs> then the most famous one's probably Einstein's, like, God does not play dice, meaning like God does not have probabilistic outcomes. There is a very definitive outcome. And that's that's what's so difficult to grasp about quantum physics in general is the idea of uncertainty. And, you know, towards the end of this episode, before we get into the future scenarios, I want to talk about some of the bigger questions like what does this mean as far as, you know, many worlds theory versus just a singular reality that we you know once the wave fu function basically does the wave function collapse into one reality as it seems to. Or are there really multiple realities being generated from quantum computing? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, free will is also an open question, like how much is truly random versus something that we're driving on a, you know, on some level, like we're flipping quarks and the, the spin of different, you know, positions versus it just mm -hmm. happening. Um, and then yeah. consciousness is the other thing, but maybe it's a little yeah. early to talk about those now, but like, when you try to model your thoughts around the workings of quantum mechanics, it just shifts your perception, your perspective of how everything could function. And I think that's what's so exciting about this space is that mm -hmm. if we can like upgrade our understanding to think of the world as in the way that nature computes, because the nature computes as a quantum computer, then that opens up our understanding to just a whole nother, another level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think maybe I'll just uh, round out um, what like what a computation, a quantum computation actually is, and then we can, you know, start 
yeah. expanding this conversation and a little you bit. Say a little bit about Moore's Law, too. I think that's a good way for people yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. So, one of, the, yeah, one of the main motivations of quantum computing is that this thing called Moore's Law is potentially coming to an end at some point in the next couple decades, potentially. But really, Moore's Law states, and this, this is the, the law that says that transistors on a um, in computers the number of transistors on a um, circuit board can basically double every two years or it, it i think it's and the point price it turned will into be cut in months. half yeah, yeah 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 basically it's the law that governs why iphones keep getting better and better and yeah you know, the it's older a good ones proxy. get cheaper and cheaper yeah yeah it's a good proxy for the computational power of any computer really of any classical computer mm -hmm. and it drives but, the tech sector to a large extent the profits mm -hmm. and one of the things though about this is you can only decrease the size of transistors so much before they're so small that a little bit of extra heat can cause these voltages to go way out of whack and then there's a bunch of error involved in in these computers and these in these circuit boards and the problem with that is you know, we can only make transistors so small, right? Which means the end of Moore's law, at least in the um, era of classical computing, is done. So there have been attempts to try alternate computing methods, and obviously quantum computing is one of those. There is also molecular computing. So, for example, um, like we said, computing is really just processing information, taking some information, and then outputting information. Um, our DNA is another form of information. And there have been people that are trying to work with molecular computing or DNA computing, where basically the, the substrate of computation is RNA and DNA. So that's a, that's a potentially interesting avenue. Um, but I think it's a little bit more niche than quantum computing. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is that when we go small enough and remember transistors are already like i forget what it was but like one one hundredth a size of a red blood cell like they're really small and when we go much lower which is probably going to happen in, like you said in the next couple of decades like the next 10 12 15 years is it's going to get so small that when you have one of these gates one of these logic gates like an and or an or gate it will literally just quantum tunnel through the gate and go to the other side so obviously that would totally screw up your classical computation. But if instead you could have a computer that leveraged that ability to quantum tunnel, then that would be obviously a great outcome. Because, you know, I mean, I, I always come back to the double slit experiment when I'm trying to visualize it, which is basically like you have two slits and you're shooting, an, you know, some sort of atom or electron through one of those slits. And before you measure, it appears as a probabilistic wave function where it, it could go through either slit, you know, pretty much 50-50 chance. But whenever you measure, it definitely goes through one of the gates. And mm -hmm. if you do it with multiple entangled electrons, then if you, know the, if you know what one of the outcomes is, you will know for certain what the other outcome is. So it sort of allows for like many parallel computations. And then once you measure, you kind of know what all of them are if they've if they've been entangled. Yeah. But the, I, I want to ask you about like 
what are some of the real difficulties in making this feasible with like an actual physical quantum computer? And I know like, you know, for instance, the temperature um, has a bit, you know, like one of the biggest challenges that needs to be absolute mm-hmm. zero. So maybe you could say a little bit about why it needs to be near absolute zero and, and what some of the other logistical difficulties are. Yeah. Um, quick, I mean, I would like to expand a little bit on what you said about the double slit experiment. Because sure. really, a quantum computation is not all that different. Really, we're trying to have some particle that behaves in a quantum fashion and or a bunch of particles and we'll call these qubits from now on mm-hmm. um, really you need to put them in some starting state which is a really high energy state and then it'll evolve through this process it'll go through quantum gates in this probabilistic fashion and it'll evolve to the lowest energy state possible and whatever this low energy state is it's still a probability distribution but you kind of have a good idea of what the outcome should be, especially when you measure uh, the outcome. So it's really just kind of a, an evolution of qubits or particles in these starting states, and then it goes to some, mm-hmm. it evolves naturally to some lower state. And that's exactly how nature works. It's this, that's exactly what everything is doing. It's trying to go to a lower energy state. Um, so yeah, uh, there are- And why does it need to be near near absolute zero for this to work where you can actually measure it yes yeah, so and, and what's and then also like what how is there a limit to how long they cohere and i know that's like yeah, one of the <laughs> yeah that's like that's like the big issue in quantum computing right now so so the problem with quantum computing is we're like we're trying to control the quantumness of mm-hmm. everything so we we manually the the computers will manually entangle and put everything in superposition um, which is a feat in and of itself for for the most part but the real challenge is keeping the all of the different qubits let's say we have 20 qubits we have to keep them all cohered which basically means the qubits are speaking the same language like they can communicate with each other which is totally necessary for a computation to make any sense and to be useful and it turns out that keeping these states in a coherent uh, fashion or in a coherent state is really, really hard. And like you said, one of the reasons it's hard is because there's so much interference from the outside world. Mm-hmm. So heat is one of those things that can interfere with the coherence or in it, it can decohere qubits. Right. Um, so we try to keep things like we try to keep the quantum computers um, so cold that it's measured in micro Kelvin. Right. Um, so we're, it's so close to absolute zero, um, which is the coldest it can possibly get. Right. It's 0.015 um, Kelvin, which is colder than outer space. And that's just some, I mean, some are even colder than that, like as cold wow. as possible. Basically. But I, I find it interesting also that you can never truly achieve absolute zero because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Like an electron will just appear out of nowhere, even if it's absolute zero, which means no energy, no heat, basically. So energy just kind of, it will literally just pop into existence because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So we can never get totally to absolute zero. And I mean, so much about this is just fascinating to me. And 
like the idea of entanglement is so fascinating to me because literally what happens in these quantum computers is you just bump some electrons into each other or some nuclei into each other and then they become entangled and when you think about like what how this could manifest itself in the macro world it's like if you meet you know if you meet like a girl at a bar and you have like an instant connection with her and you're like both thinking about each other afterwards like oh man should i text her like like is she thinking about me and if you truly are both thinking about each other it's like your electrons in your nuclei are orbiting all the way in her brain and her electrons in her nuclei are orbiting all the way out in your brain and you're like in some sense entangled and you know you know it's funny like i mean growing you know my mom is very religious and and growing up she would say to me like oh you should only ever have sex with someone who you're in love with because if you have sex with someone your souls are intertwined and i always thought that was kind of ridiculous but when you think about quantum entanglement there probably is some truth to that like <laughs> like the more intimately involved you are with another being especially another conscious being cuz consciousness seems to operate on some quantum level you do become entangled and entanglement seems to also be an argument for all of the cosmos being interconnected and us all in some being the universe rather than like some external being having created it unless you believe in the simulation hypothesis which which also seems to fit quantum physics quite nicely so i mean there's just so many so many ways that you can interpret the macroscopic world differently once you understand how the subatomic world is operating on a quantum level yeah and that's one of the cool things with you know and i i don't know you know how i feel about um, no i know it's all very entangled you know with <laughs> some because obviously there's a lot more to entangling particles than just bumping into each other like there's there's more things that we don't understand than things we do understand about quantum physics. Right. Um, it's really good. You know, there are some really good um, measurements, but I think or really good uh, predictions that quantum computing has. But it's still, you it's know, so early. we still have such a limited understanding of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's so many cool things just by trying to get quantum computing, we're getting better at physics. We're getting better right. at understanding how to manipulate our environment. Um, so that's that's something that's really interesting to me. And maybe, you know, maybe we talk about that. Or you asked me a question earlier, and then I I wanted to finish up this. The yeah, talk that's of all what right. Quantum computation was. Yeah, I mean, I think at this stage, it would be good to get a sense for what are some of the different players in quantum computing, what are some of their approaches, and then after we sort of get a lay of the land there, then we can talk about some of the use cases and applications. Um, and, you know, you talked about how we are reaching the end of Moore's Law, and so, understandably, there's some major investment going on in quantum computers. It's still very early. I mean, when we looked through our data, basically the projections are all just projections, right? There's only been a few years of actual investment in quantum computing, actual patents, because mm -hmm. quantum computers have only been feasible in the very recent past. So, but the interesting thing that I'm seeing is that there are some new players that I had never heard about. So, 
you know, you've got IBM, Microsoft, and Google, but then you have new players like D-Wave and Rigetti. And mm. I'm curious how you see the lay of the land and, and what the different, um, you know, approaches are that these players are, are taking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with quantum computing, there's no one best way to design a qubit. And really, that's what everyone's trying to do is what, how can we design qubits so that the amount of errors that mm. happen, and there's a bunch of different sources of errors. And I think that's actually one of the other things that um, the error I didn't rate. talk about. Yeah, yeah the, the error rate, and that's something that's caused by, you know, the heat. So that's why we need absol almost absolute zero in our quantum computations. We also need it to be in a vac these computers to be in a vacuum or a near mm -hmm. vacuum because just just regular atmospheric molecules like right. CO2 and oxygen or like if you're um, near granite and radiation is coming out yeah like, like there's so many different <laughs> yeah there's so many different things that can affect and um, decohere these these qubits and what everyone is trying to do is design a qubit that is as stable as possible and has the lowest error rate because there's this talk of once we achieve a 50 qubit quantum computer that that's that's called quantum supremacy which basically means beyond 50 qubits uh, a quantum computer can outperform the top performing supercomputer in the world today but that's you know that's there's a little bit of a <laughs> Well, it's not well, exactly true. I mean, because... I'm looking at a chart right now from CB Insights that shows that Google achieved 72 qubits in 2018, and Rigetti achieved 128 qubits in 2019. But or the... they, they said that they'll release 128 qubits in 2019. It's oh, not okay. official yet. Yeah. Okay. But it sounds like we are near that level that like what you're referring to as like sort of like a tipping point. However, I don't know what their error rate is because there's that, that chart that basically shows that in order to have a meaningful improvement in computational power, you need both an increase in the number of qubits and you need a decrease in the error rate. If you just increase yeah. the qubits and the error rate continues, then you're not going to actually have more computational power. And you could yeah. kind of think of it as like, you know, if you have this qubit and if you're, sh if you're, get put if you're emitting some microwaves to flip it into a certain position but you don't quite get the frequency right there's a little bit of interference and maybe you know 99% of the time it flips in the way that you're predicting but 1% of the time it just doesn't change which would be in line with quantum uncertainty principle then that's a 1% error rate and 1% is pretty bad compared to classical computers so to get this to a level where it's like uh, competitive with classical computers as far as an error rate is really, really hard. And yeah. some people even that I've researched have set, have thought that we may never achieve an error rate that rivals classical computers, but that doesn't mean it yeah. won't still be useful for other, uh, you know, optimization problems or, or, uh, yeah. And it's, um, it's expected that the error rates will be higher with with quantum computing, because, I mean, just the sheer fact that the output is a continuous number, just a minor error of, you know, a thousandth of, a you know, if you have, um, if you read out a, like, point nine 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 
0.91 and then 0. 0.0001 for zero. Like there, there's, it's not exactly zero and one, even though the probability is almost mm-hmm. exactly this zero or points to it being one. So there's, there's just the fact that qubits are continuous numbers rather than a discrete zero or one. Mm-hmm. That adds a lot of error. But there have been, you know, there's been work. Peter Shore is one of the fathers of um, quantum computing, and he's come up with several different things. But one of the things he came up with is quantum error correction, hmm. which uses qubits to correct other qubits. But it need you need a lot of qubits to correct, to fully correct a single qubit. Interesting. So when you, is it like when getting a larger these, sample size, kind of like in statistics? Um, no, it's it's really just adding redundancy to mm. each qubit because I mean the same thing happens in classical computers because information is lost especially when you send information over a network mm-hmm. you're not guaranteed to have all the information present but you have these things called checksums which is kind of like this this thing that'll you can send in a code and then you can kind of like cross reference this code with what you got and see if there's any errors and if there was an error you know for sure Mm -hmm. if there was one Um, so there's a lot of things in classical computing and there have been several decades of work on error correction Um, so we're still kind of in the the early stages of quantum error correction and you know Peter Shore has some uh, he proposed some um, ideas for how to do this and they seem to they seem to be good, and that's what I think a lot of uh, these companies are doing when they're creating actual um, quantum computers and design designing these qubits that have the lowest um, error rate as possible. But obviously, we we don't want to <clears throat> for every one qubit, we don't want another ten qubits to correct the error of that qubit. Mm-hmm. That starts to really. Um, make it hard to have a quantum computer that you know can do anything useful which we don't really right now so who of the major players would you put your money on as being in the best position to have the lowest error rate highest number of qubits basically just the best quantum computer out there i mean i know it's so early but the one i find really interesting is microsoft so they're mm-hmm. trying to design something called a topological quantum computer. And they're using, so this is, I believe, still completely theoretical. And their qubits are created with these things called quasi-particles. Hmm. Um, and I don't, uh, the last time I I've looked into this, they didn't even know if this quasi-particle existed. Um well, so I've heard of qubits as just being defined as virtual atoms. So you think that's well? Like... There's a lot of different ways. Hmm. Well, so that's a little different. Um, a okay. virtual. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm just. I'm just about. wondering how much is terminology versus like a fundamentally different type of. So particle. this is a fundamentally different type of huh. quantum computer. It's basically using these these quasi particles that can be put into this this structure it's a topological structure called a braid and the reason this braid is important is because 
the braid itself is more robust to interference. Hmm. So this is potentially the most stable qubit that could be created. And I think they're, they're doing something that's so new and so different that it's almost purely research and almost purely theoretical at this point. I don't even know if they have like a work. That's really interesting. It, it almost makes me think of like, if you've ever, if you've ever seen a visualization of string theory, where it's kind of like those tubes that kind of go like, you know, pervade through different dimensions. Like mm. that's almost like a similar kind of structure to what you're talking about. I wonder if that has any relation to why it's better able to withstand interference. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah, I'm not really sure. Like there's a lot of really deep theoretical particle physics going right, on. <laughs> right. but, but, but what they say is that this, this structure is just more stable and can remain cohered for a lot longer hmm. than all of these others because it can it can actually um, interact with higher temperatures and with oxygen and um, co2 and all of these different things that cause these basic um, qubits to become decohered mm -hmm. um, so it's it's one of those that I think is like if they can pull that off, I think Microsoft is going to yeah. win out in that one. I don't know if there's any like top secret theoretical stuff going on at Google, IBM, Intel, right. like all of these all of these companies might be doing something um, similar. But I think long term, you know, to answer your question, if this um, this qubit, this topological qubit, can exist then I think that one is probably going to be the most stable and probably the, the, the most likely to um, see the, the general public's right. uh, device in the general public's devices. Yeah, and from a patent perspective, Microsoft is the third, has the third most quantum computing patents after mm. IBM is second and then D-Wave is number one. Oh, yeah. So I want to talk about D-Wave for a second, too, because there's a okay, lot of misconceptions sure. about that. So D-Wave, so they came out with a over 2,000 qubit system. Wow. And I'm, I'm, quote, I'm quoting for people that are only listening. Um, the reason I put it in quotes is because they aren't designing a universal quantum computer really what they have is something that's more like a quantum annealer, which is designed to solve very specific problems. And the other thing is, I think um, a lot of it could be either a marketing push or something else, but um, there's a lot of controversy around D-Wave sometimes because they claim to have a 2000 qubit computer when they have extremely high error rates and they also mm. can't do a lot of the main quantum algorithms because it's not a universal quantum computer. So they couldn't do anything like prime factorization and some of these other. So what like, is the more narrow problem that they are trying to solve? So that, and I'm, so there's a lot of potential promise with them in optimization problems. Mm. So they, they put a paper, let me figure out what the exact number is. Yeah. So with, uh, annealing problems, which is, if you think, so to kind of describe what annealing is, it's an optimization problem. So if you think of this flat surface or like a, a sphere, I guess, so like the earth with a bunch of peaks and valleys, 
the only information you have is where you are right now, like what your elevation is, and you want to find the lowest possible elevation. The in the classical case, you have to search every single possible place if you want to find the optimal solution, mm-hmm. and that can take an unreasonable amount of time. Um, so really, what people have to do now is sort of approximate what the best solution might be and there's similar optimization problems in um, uh, machine learning for example but really what this quantum annealing can do that D-Wave's computers are potentially good at is basically just go to the globally minimum valley immediately so it's almost like it cuts right through all the hills and it goes directly to the global minimum, which mm-hmm. is really good for certain optimization problems, especially if you think of this hilly surface in hundreds or thousands of dimensions, hmm. which, you know, by default, we can't think of that because right. it's completely impossible to visualize, but it makes the optimization problems really hard to solve. Um, but with this quantum annealing, they so this paper said that they can solve these problems or some case, some instances of these problems a hundred million times faster than their classical counterparts so but like what's an actual problem so like like what you wanted to know the lowest depth what would that be useful for okay so so that's just a way of visualizing this space really Mm -hmm. when you're thinking of an optimization problem you think of the you think of this this giant space as a loss function or an objective function the objective function mathematically has some sort of geometrical shape, whether or not mm. it's possible to visualize that. So any machine learning problem, um, we're trying to find a minimum of a right, um, objective right. function. And if you were to somehow visualize this objective function space, it would look like peaks and valleys but these peaks and valleys might be in hundreds or thousands or millions of dimensions. Right. So it's the this peaks and valleys. Um, you could think analogy. of it kind of like kind of like yeah. if you were maximizing for your own happiness in life, there may be multiple equal peaks on that happiness yeah. landscape where yeah. maybe you'd be super happy being a stay-at-home dad who writes crime novels. <laughs> And likewise, you'd be really happy as a travel photographer, as a single person just living up your life. And those are very different, but you may have equal levels of happiness. So you could imagine that like classical is kind of like, you know, just trying to just brute computing power to like try all the various possibilities. Whereas with quantum, it's more like you're like sending out little sentinels in all directions and then boom, you measure them all at once and you find like which one has achieved the highest, the highest yeah. peak. Um, yeah. So and that's that, it. I mean, that's essentially, that's essentially what it boils down to these organizations. Right. So I'd like to now get into if we really had a, a optimistic outcome with what these computers can do, what use cases would open up to us? What would we be able to do with a highly functioning quantum computer that we cannot do today. Yeah, and- so I think the the first obvious one that we hear about all the time is quantum cryptography. Mm-hmm. So so what what we hear about is that quantum computing can break all of the current technology, it can break all of the current encryption methods 
because we use something called or we use a version of like um, prime um, factorization or or the um, right like if you could prime factor these these keys that like are used you have a private key and a public key and by just having the public key you could find the prime number to get the private key but with traditional computers it would just take like hundreds take of years or thousands of years whereas more, yeah. more than the time of the universe like the length of the universe so right. you, it's not going to happen with classical computers but with a quantum computer it could potentially happen in minutes yeah and that's through something called uh, shor's algorithm so again peter shor came up with this this algorithm where um Oh, yeah, for sure. It can, it can factor. Yeah, S H O R. Yeah. Can, it can factor this, these giant I'm, prime numbers. I mean, I've heard one person, I was watching this TED talk of someone saying that it's possible that in the future we could have a quantum internet that is completely secure, where you could communicate with people, you could send money, you could transact without any risk whatsoever of someone breaking that encryption because to break the encryption you'd have to break the laws of quantum mechanics themselves and yeah that's pretty awesome and the reason for that is if you if you design your key and it's in this like weird transient state you know for sure when something that is that was quantum has been observed because right. the wave function collapses. Right. So you can tell if somebody tries to read the information that's being sent. It's like tripping an then, alarm, like yeah, someone breaking exactly. into your house. The, the, wave, the wave function of your information, of your quantum information that's being sent over this network collapses. So you know exactly what happens. And also, it's not necessarily useful to even read this, right. this uh, information because once it collapses, it just kind of falls into whatever state it was in so it's it's like you said completely secure you'd have to literally break the laws of physics as we know them today now there might be some additions to the laws of physics in the next couple hundred years that are like okay well maybe there's this loophole in physics right. that we can break it but for the foreseeable future yeah. no like that's for the people running the simulation they can exploit the loopholes but <laughs> for the people in the simulation no one's breaking in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and, and to kind of talk about simulation, like expand on that a well, little I, bit. Well, I want to talk about the use case. We should round out the use cases first. Well, that's what I mean. I was oh, okay. About. Sure, so, yeah, go ahead. So we can uh, simulate the physical world. We can simulate chemical interactions. We can simulate actual physical right. um, Well, I want to linger on chemical interactions because that's something that when I was researching this, I was shocked at how bad we are at simulating chemical systems. So I found that, um, you know, I'm just looking, looking here at this diagram and it shows that the largest chemical structure that we can simulate is this like, what is it, manganese? Mm -hmm. But it's just some random enzyme and like literally the all of our computing power put together can just simulate this one little enzyme and by itself by right? itself like in a silo yeah, yeah just like what this enzyme does and so uh -huh. if you're trying to make breakthroughs in medicine and find you know how does a cancer cell move what makes it 
you know, progress? How can we cure cancer? How can we create cures for people based on their specific genome? Um, I've, I've read that through quantum computing, we could potentially encode every person's genome, all 8, million, 8 billion people. And, you know, potentially then you could just have that data on file. And then if you get some disease, they could just, you know, you could run through a quantum computer, like many different possibilities of ways to treat that disease based on your genome, and then come out with the, with the right one. Um, but just the ability to model different chemical structures enzymes, yeah. proteins, molecules, cancer cells, medicines. medicines. Yeah. yeah. Like that ability we have, we're so limited right now. And the, the doors of what's possible will just open up tremendously if we are able to create some working quantum computers at scale. Yeah. And one of the other things that's really interesting is what if we can simulate a couple neurons? Like it, there's a bunch of different atoms in the cell, but what if what if we can start to model even more neurons? And that, more neurons that could and be more the neurons. first creation of artificial consciousness. Yeah, because if if consciousness does rely on quantum effects, we're never going to get there with quant or with classical right. computing. Right. Because classical computing and I heard this recently on the Joe Rogan and um Naval podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where basically Naval was saying he thinks artificial general intelligence is not something to worry about because classical computers can't model. Sure, they can model the sort of output behavior of a neuron, like all of these different neurons kind of work together and then fire in this pattern. But what we can't do is model the actual structure of the neuron, like the atomic mm -hmm. structure of the neuron. But if we can actually do this with quantum computers, we might get to a point where we're truly simulating a mind. Right. And we're truly simu simulating a sentient mind. Right. Um, it might be one of the prerequisites for artificial general intelligence, or at mm -hmm. least sentient AGI. So there's there's a lot of really interesting things that could come from this. And then, you know, it's yeah. really mind-blowing to think about all of the... The different things we might even come up with a theory of everything that can more tightly integrate uh, quantum physics and gravity right so, you know there's there's so many different things that we can do here um, that I think there's the also the search for extraterrestrial life or habitable planets for knowing when and you know what path like asteroids could come at us and oh um, yeah uh, yeah, so there's, uh, oh, by the way, it was nitrogen, or nitro, nitrogenase was the enzyme, by the way. Nitrogenase, um, okay. Understanding climate change. But yeah, the most exciting ones to me are really the medical applications and the AI or, you know, brain-machine interface applications. Like, mm -hmm. another interesting element of a quantum internet could be that you could basically transport your mind to another place at faster than the speed of light through entanglement. So you could imagine like if you're on a Zoom call or like a Skype call <laughs> with someone who's like on Mars and you, there's no delay, like you're instantaneously conversing with this person, that would be one like, you know, maybe medium term application. And then in the far future, you could imagine like sending out probes to every corner of the cosmos and then you could just have like a control center where you basically just like VR 
into this like each of those probes and you can sort of like like it kind of reminds me of this quote that elon musk had where he said why would you want to teleport your body just teleport your consciousness like <laughs> <laughs> the so the interesting thing there like I, i'm very curious to see how this works but i know there are issues with copying quantum information like you can't huh. you can't copy exactly a quantum system and put it somewhere else um and that's that's where there's like this misconception about like spooky action spooky action at a distance um because it's not actually a you not always a useful property because when you read one when you re so if two um electrons are entangled and you measure one of those they become disentangled and there's not uh. so there's there's different um things that make these sorts of things difficult but i think you know if you could if probably talking, use it in some way i'm sure there's there's a way or i mean even if you just make a copy of yourself or a, a right copy well this well this comes back to the thought experiment of if you were to create a true transportation machine where let's say i'm in la right now i go into this transport machine and then it basically scans all of my atoms, all the structures in my body, and then disintegrates myself, and then basically reconstructs it in, let's say, London. Mm -hmm. Then, and let's say I do that every morning as part of my commute for work, and then one day the machine malfunctions, and it does the copying, and it does the replication, but it, it fails to disintegrate me. Then they're yeah. like, oh yeah, sorry, there's been some sort of a mix-up, you're it worked fine like you're in london but you know now we're gonna have to kill you because the disintegration didn't work i would be like no like i'm the real me like don't <laughs> kill me that guy's an imposter and so like that's a good reason why we wouldn't want to actually teleport ourselves somewhere mm -hmm. but if we could at faster than light speed just see through the eyes of a camera elsewhere or like go into an avatar that maybe has like the exact same physical structure as our own bodies. That's just like, you know, sitting in London waiting. And then I can mm -hmm. just take over that, that body through quantum entanglement. Like that would be awesome. I don't know <laughs> if it's possible, but like when I'm thinking like, what would be like the most awesome application? Like that's definitely up there. Yeah. And who knows what happens if you, so if humans survive a thousand years, what does that world look like? Right. And I think, I think quantum computing is fundamental to that world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's probably a bunch of different ways that quantum computing is going to evolve because right now where I see the current state of quantum computing is we're in a similar state as when people were with classical computers programming with yeah. cards. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that too. So to give a sense of how long this will take, in 1946, the first big computer was built by the US government costing $6.8 million, and it was the size of a, a, a room, big room. By the year 2018, which is you know just, just around today's time, IBM can create a similar computer, like a microprocessor, that's the size of a grain of salt for 10 cents. Okay, so we went from $6.8 million to 10 cents in 72 years. 
and similar computation power. So if we think about like where we are now with quantum computers and where we may be 72 years from now, it seems quite likely that by, you know, by the time, let's say we're in our golden years, then we, you know, the young kids, our grandkids will be running around with like maybe with quantum computers in their pockets and just able to basically like manifest the world in whatever way they desire on <laughs> command. And I kind of, this kind of gets into the future scenario. So maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should move to that if, if you're, if you're ready or, or do you have something else to say? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would basically only say that the, a classical computer is necessary, like in conjunction with yeah, a yeah, quantum totally. computer. So more of a um, hybrid computer. Yeah, or, or even but, you may not need your own quantum computer. You may just tap into like a quantum cloud computer that yeah, just... Yeah, and that's, that's pretty much what's happening right now. And like I'll, IBM I'll talk already about that has at the one. very end, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get into the scenarios. What do you think about the best case scenario then? Best case scenario. My best case scenario is one in which we are able to effectuate the simulation hypothesis that Elon Musk believes we're in already mm -hmm. uh, to basically play God to create worlds on command. So I was reading this book called The Simulation by this MIT computer scientist who also has built VR systems and is just a really all-around smart computer scientist. And... When you think about like what would be required to actually create a simulation in the real world, you could do it through 3D printing on the atomic and subatomic level. So if you could imagine like imagine you're like walking through a grassy field, like similar to how you would be if you're playing World of Warcraft and it's like if you turn left the pixels render in that part of the world when you walk in that mm. direction. If you go forward, the pixels sort of render in that direction. And you could do it through light projection, which is another nascent field that I think we should at some point do a whole episode on. But you could imagine like with sort of hologram light technology, you could make structures appear in physical space that aren't physically there if you touch them. So that would be sort of like an earlier way to basically have the same effect of augmented reality, virtual reality without needing to wear glasses at all. Like you could just walk outside and you could have light projection, create an ad for Coca-Cola outside your house and follow you around everywhere you go until you buy that sugary drink. Right. I'm not saying <laughs> I would want that, but I'm just saying that's a possibility technical, technically. Okay. And beyond that, if you wanted to create actual physical objects that aren't just light projections, you could do that through a quantum com computation that 3D prints subatomic particles and atomic particles. And when you think about like what a 3D structure is, most of it's empty space. It's really just the structure, and you don't even really need the middle of the structure. You really just need the edges of it for it to feel solid and to have the full experience of this being a real physical object, even if it's like basically hollow on the inside. So you could imagine a world in the far future facilitated with quantum computing where you could basically just like walk around 
and reality is rendered on command however you desire and you could basically just play god and will things into existence through a brain machine interface combined with quantum computing combined with 3d printing on the molecular level combined with light projection and that's that's my best case scenario for the long future when i think about the short term i would just say that we have enough progress in quantum computing to keep Moore's law going. So that's what I would say, like, if we just keep progress so that the economy keeps growing, funding keeps, uh, keeps going, mm-hmm. then that would be like a great short term outcome, because a lot of this is still very, very early. And then my medium term would be, we're better, we're able to create better batteries. That's something we haven't discussed yet. But this is a oh, major yeah. limitation in energy is that our batteries suck right now and even though we've got pretty good solar panels we just can't store the energy well and this is something quantum computing could solve in addition to the other things we've talked about like medical advances business optimization problems encryption but i get most excited when i think about like the far future like rendering reality on command i mean it's just so awesome like thinking about what's possible um, and then exploring yeah. other worlds remotely and 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 I would say also just fundamentally understanding the workings of the universe and having a grand theory of everything, whether it is a simulation or a mother or a many worlds theory. Um, and we, we should also talk about that at some point, but I'll end my best case scenario there. <laughs> yeah. I could go on. So I I similarly find it really interesting to think about the far future with quantum computing and for my best case scenario yeah so i think like i said earlier quantum computing is a prerequisite for artificial general intelligence and or specifically sentient agi right consciousness yeah, yeah yeah and one of the other things that i've been thinking about recently is it's a little naive to think humans are the final stage of evolution. Oh yeah. I think I think there's especially if you think of a thousand, ten thousand, a million years down the road, humans are either going to be extinct or humans are going to be completely different from what we think of as a human today. And I think one of the ways that we can keep the pace of evolution going is through an artificial general intelligence. And this is one of the things that uh, I think Joe Rogan talks about a lot is we're just eventually going to like, we're just giving birth. We're almost like caterpillars making a cocoon that's giving birth to something else. And if that something else is AGI, this AGI has the potential, I think to really understand what the what theories of everything real what a theory of everything mm-hmm. would actually look like and it could do you think that could concept. be possible through a brain machine interface like an augmented human or do you think it would require like a fundamentally different brain structure i think in the when i say so let's let's you know pick this up from the point uh we can create a sentient agi yeah i think i think at first it will be useful to have both. Mm -hmm. I think beyond a certain point, the AGI will innovate so quickly that the limitations of biology, yeah, the limitations of biology are just too great Mm -hmm. because it's not going to, 
I don't think that we're really going to explore the cosmos as biological creatures. There are way too many things that we can't handle as biological mm -hmm. creatures because we're so tied to Earth. Right. Everything about our design is specific to Earth because we evolved here. And I think once once we have something else that is different and maybe it's it's pure like maybe most of AGI is just pure information or light being sent from one place to the other. You know, that I think once once we reach that point, we can truly explore the cosmos and i say we as in like whatever that thing is in the right. future life um, earthlings yeah um whether they be and, meat made or silicon made yeah or something totally new entirely yeah. like it's we just have no idea but i do think that we in the best case do just give rise to something that maybe doesn't have these negative impulses that a lot of humans have maybe it can truly be some sort of benevolent thing well, that wants to explore you know that just wants to understand the true nature of reality and what I, if... I would argue that in if there were no evil there would also be no benevolence so if there's a world where every being is just a benevolent agi then benevolence itself is meaningless because there's no counterexample to that and and maybe maybe benevolent isn't the right word maybe it's it's stoic and purely scientific and it's really mm -hmm. just trying to understand the nature of reality and and it could turn out that you know the same way that with a playground of humans life, to observe and enjoy and or the <laughs> whole universe the whole universe to observe and enjoy because yeah. if you think of the the first molecule on earth this first single-celled organism on earth that you know last i mean that period of like really small cells and single cellular or unicellular organisms on earth was an extremely long amount of time i think um in like close to a billion years um this thing was just these things were just kind of floating around in the ocean but eventually things just kind of uh gain traction and mm -hmm. i think there might be a similar thing in the far future where the, like AGI, this one AGI that was developed on Earth is the universal equivalent to Earth's first unicellular organisms. And then mm. we can start to colonize the entire universe, the, or first the entire galaxy and then the whole universe. And, you know, this this can expand. Right. Well, what, what do you think about, I've, I've also heard the argument that uh, in relation to the Fermi paradox, that perhaps the reason that we don't see other extraterrestrial uh, civilizations emitting lots of energy from their home planets is because they realize that it makes a lot more sense to go inward rather than to explore outwards, meaning to create virtual worlds and simulations on like more of like a quantum level rather than like traveling light years across space time to physical planets. What do you think about that sort of trade off? Um, I think I don't really know what, what the answer would be. Um, yeah. I don't know. The Fermi paradox is, you know, there's a lot of different explanations for why we haven't seen something. It could just be that it's really hard to make life and we just can't observe life because stuff is, even if there, there is life, 
it's so far away, like in like several million. Um, but I'm just saying, away. like, if if humanity continues to progress, won't it make more sense to just create whatever virtual worlds we want rather than to explore externally? Or I guess maybe we'll at least we'll want to do both for as long as we're like physical beings because we love physical world stuff. Yeah, I just I think that we don't understand enough about how the universe works and what a super intelligent species would actually do right. and would be capable of because, because I, it's I, possible that they could go in they could somehow manage to like enter the fourth dimension and right. we just we we physically can't perceive something that is in a higher dimension well and i could imagine could like it does seem like you could through experiments understand fundamental insights about not just what's happening in this little quantum area but all, the entire like quantum dimension because if you think about quantum field theory which i find fascinating it's basically that there are these different fields of activity and if you vibrate on a certain frequency it'll affect a certain type of structure like electrons which all happen to have the same sort of mass energy and behavior whereas if you vibrate on another frequency you affect the whole nucleus and another one is the whole atom but another frequency is the whole molecule and it's kind of like there are these fields and so i wonder if it is even that meaningful to travel to other points on the space-time continuum rather than to just like study the different fields and by studying those fields maybe yeah. you can understand principles about the whole field and that's possible i mean definitely possible so right. you know i i'm i'm not sure what it would look like but i you know the explorer in me oh, you know, yeah. in the best yeah. case would just love to see you know the whole universe colonized totally um, yeah but anyways yeah maybe we move on to the worst case okay what do you think Worst case scenario. My worst case scenario, I'll start in chronological order. In the short term, it's that we cannot achieve a low enough error rate for quantum computers to be useful. So in the short term, the worst thing is they just don't work enough for it to be worthwhile. In the medium term, my worst case is that whoever has ownership of the first truly effective and superior quantum computer will use that superiority to winner-take-all ends. Basically, you could game the stock market or you could create medical advances for yourselves and maybe charge a ton of money so only the, the, the people at the top would be able to benefit. Like, There are lots of ways where if it's not democratized, like it could it could be an advantage for the small portion of people who invented it or who have ownership and not to those who don't. I mean, you could also imagine if like, for instance, China had the breakthrough first major quantum computer and they use that to like consolidate their power and, you know, mm -hmm. affect their sort of worldview. So that's like sort of medium term, which is really not like that scary, but something to think yeah. about. But the long term is where it actually gets pretty terrifying. And that's where we engineer something like, let's say, a misaligned general AI or let's say some sort of nuclear catastrophe or a virus or just something that we, we maybe we couldn't even imagine. I mean, the way I think about it is Nick Bostrom's pulling a black ball out of the urn of invention, mm -hmm. right? Like 
it's possible that because we're operating in the fundamental operating system for the cosmos, we could have some pretty terrible consequences if we're not careful. I don't know that for sure, but it does seem like, to Nick Bostrom's point, if there do exist some inventions that can spell our doom, and that seems quite possible given that you know, nuclear bombs are a thing and mass viruses are a thing, and then it's possible that we will discover something that cannot be undiscovered and that it could spell our doom. So it's it's fairly broad, my worst case, but yeah. it really just points to the fact that we need to be very careful in this way and that we should make sure mm-hmm. that whatever areas of quantum computing are developed, that they're always looking out for the whole rather than you know trying to favor specific subgroups. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would I would say that mine mine are similar. The short kind of like she said, the short term is we just don't figure it out. We don't figure out quantum computing. We can't. We just can't do it because it's either too hard. There's not enough people in it, or there are some like laws of physics that make it nearly impossible without being in like a near vacuum everywhere. Because obviously we can't walk around with like absolute zero phones or absolute zero or uh, vacuum sealed phones with a quantum processor so there's a lot of limitations and i think you know that that might even be a a longer term thing like that's what i was thinking maybe we have like a quantum like a huge quantum computer on the moon or something so that it's a lot easier to be near zero (laughs) yeah yeah that that's possible but then there's a lot of interference from the sun's particles because we get a lot of protection Right. You know, we get a lot of protection from that stuff because of our magnetosphere. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of stuff out in space that we just can't see, but there's still interference out there. Um, but anyways, yeah, for uh, the other thing, you know, if we do figure it out, maybe for power consolidation, um, I mean, I don't think it's very likely because I think unlike what most people think of as AGI and how the exponential increase in technology will, you know, make something so smart that it just becomes runaway and dominates the world. I don't think that's the case with quantum computing. I think the progress will be incremental enough. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it'll be slower than classical computing because it is a fundamentally harder problem to solve. Um, I think that, that it's probably not, you know, maybe that's getting into the likely scenarios, but I don't think it's very likely that we have um, a computer that is, you know, so so advanced beyond all the other countries that it, you know, it right? It, it is a little. Power. That's what I was thinking too. It's a little premature to worry that much about the worst case for this topic because mm-hmm. it's so early. So mm-hmm. we're probably better off worrying about climate change or. Yeah. You know, benevolent AI in general as opposed to quantum AI. And yeah. yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. Um, one, yeah. one last thing to, to touch out uh, to really get into a worst case is if we can create simulations uh, with that, yeah. you know, if we can create simulations and we might be in a quantum simulation right now and there might be, you know, billions, trillions, un, like unfathomable numbers of simulations going on right now mm-hmm. by some, you know, some being, um, 
if if that is actually taking place and if we can do that in the future there are probably some of those simulations that are complete hell for everything alive in that simulation so that that would be the worst case it's just like this unimaginable hell just something we don't even know like we just view it as or whoever is simulating just views it as okay this is an interesting outcome right you know in the name of science without really thinking about the consequences of the suffering of what's going on but i think that's i think that sort of simulation is so far in the future it's like, like worrying it about overpopulation on mars oh i would say like it would it's worrying about overpopulation of the next galaxy like huh. i think it's i think it's that far out that we can create those sorts of simulations um but yeah i i do think um it's something to at least put out there as a worst case yeah um so what do you think for the likely scenario then most likely scenario my most likely scenario is that there will be useful quantum computers in our lifetime but they will be in the cloud they won't be a personal quantum computer and they will still be for relatively niche purposes. So IBM already has a quantum computer that you can go on their website and you can run an experiment and just use a real quantum computer. So they're already available today. They're just very limited in as far as like what they can compute and how complex the queries can be. But that's going to get better and better. So I think that by the time where, you know, that we have kids and where you know, our kids are sort of growing up and entering the job market. At that point, I think it will have meaningful contributions in biology, healthcare, space exploration, encryption, battery storage, business optimization. And I don't think we're going to achieve any of the worst case scenarios in our lifetime. But I think that our kids are going to be tasked with making sure that some of the worst case scenarios don't become realized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would say something pretty similar. I I do think that it's going to take a lot longer than some people would like or than they would think mm-hmm. um, to get useful to be able to run useful quantum algorithms. But there is going to be steady development, I think. And one of the issues right now is that we're essentially writing assembly code which is a super low level language meaning you have to specify a whole bunch of different things to try to write this quantum algorithm like you have to define the exact quantum gates all along you know the process if we still had to do that with quantum or with classical computers oh it takes forever yeah yeah, like (laughs) there's absolutely no way we would have laptops on you know in a home right. there's but i do think there i mean i know there is development to try to create high level uh quantum programming languages and i think i think we'll probably see the programming languages develop a little bit faster than the hardware itself because the hmm. hardware is is truly difficult to figure out um and like you said it's also going to likely remain like this client server like it's going to right. be it's going to all be in the cloud, meaning you can, you're using your laptop, but you can define a quantum program and then just send it off to a quantum computer and then get results back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the things too that 
I think any listener, especially if you're a little bit younger, maybe you're in college or thinking about what to do with your life, or you just want to like redesign a career, you really don't need to understand quantum physics to write quantum programs. Yes, if you want to, you know, write or create um, quantum computers in the actual hardware, yes, you need to know quantum physics. But if you have a really good understanding of like linear algebra and how um, matrix operations work and, you know, some, some higher level concepts, anyone, I think anyone has the capacity to write a quantum algorithm. And like you said, the IBM um, quantum experience, that's what they call it. Um, mm -hmm. They have a whole bunch of tutorials, like they'll, they'll take yeah. you through how to actually write a quantum program and there are really get, good resources out there yeah and, and anyone can do it I think this is one of those things where if you know how to write quantum algorithms you're gonna be so valuable at some point yeah. in the future um, it's just a matter of when and if you just kind of and I, I would say also it's it's less about how good you were at science in school or math in school and it's more about if you have a real interest and curiosity in this area I think that's an even bigger determinant of success because even if you're not the one writing the quantum algorithms, like for that, you do need a good understanding of math and science. But even if you're someone who just helps further the field and public understanding, and I mean, this yeah. whole area is going to be become so much more important as time goes on that I think the biggest factor is whether you have interest and curiosity in this area and you're willing to really, you know, delve in deep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. All of these, there's so many different angles that you can attack quantum computing from. And I think if we can really get a handle on it, the whole world is going to change. Totally. So the same way that classical computers revolutionized our world, I think we can experience a similar revolution, if not in our lifetime, the next generation beyond us. Yeah. That Yeah, and I, I think a good place to end it would be what is still unknown because one of my biggest gripes with how science is typically taught is it's taught as if most stuff has been figured out but when we think about this topic in particular so much has not been figured out and it has so many implications for everything else like i just want to end on free will consciousness and the many worlds theory all three or of the these, theory of everything or the theory of everything but the, all of these areas are very much unknowns. They're big question marks. We don't know if there is just one reality that the wave function collapses and this is the one we're in. Or it may be that there are many realities forking out like Jean-Louis Bourget's Garden of Forking Paths. As far as free will, it may be that we're like avatars in a video game choosing our own reality flipping quarks and literally creating the reality that we find ourselves living in or it may be that there is no free will and with consciousness we don't know how consciousness works what organizational structure of neurons or some other silicon type would be required to create a real conscious experience we don't know how to create that in an ai we don't know how it works in our own minds so all of these are areas that are still very nascent, haven't been discovered, and anyone who's listening to this has the, the real possibility of making some big impacts on this field. We are all gathered here today to talk about three very important things. I think that's a great place to end it.
All right, thank you everyone We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.